Okay, so on behalf of the um, Cambridge Immunology Network, I'd like to welcome you this evening. Um, we believe immunology is tremendously important, and uh, uh, immunology being the future of medicine is um, maybe slightly overstating it, but not hugely. If I tell you that some of the big drug companies now are completely focused on immunology for most of their major drug targets, you'll understand how important it is. So our aim today is to explain to you some of our work and to explain to you why we think that immunology is the uh, future of medicine. We have three fantastic speakers. We have Fernanda, we have Ludovic, and we have Josefina, um, who will talk to you about various subjects. Each of us will talk for 10 minutes. But first up, unfortunately, you have me. And I am going to talk to you about uh, Alzheimer's disease. So my name is Claire Bryant. I'm a professor in the Department of Medicine and the Department of Veterinary Medicine. And I'm also seconded three days a week at GSK. So I'm, I'm seeing what it's like in the big bad world of pharma. Um, and using my knowledge to apply it to, to drug development uh, in, in medicine for people. And intrinsically, what I do is work on something called the innate immune system. And so that's the primary um, host defense against things like bacterial infection. And I'm particularly interested in bacterial infection. So you might say to me, well, what has bacterial infection got to do with Alzheimer's disease? And so, actually, by a happy accident, we've stumbled across something which might be quite important, um, hopefully, to offer some actual hope to Alzheimer's disease patients and some new ways of potentially treating them. And this all centres around a, a molecule called TLR4. And TLR4 is uh, called, its proper name is Toll-like Receptor 4. As biologists, we like to abbreviate everything. It's very important because then nobody understands what we're talking about. Uh, so we call it Toll-like Receptor 4, or TLR4. And TLR4 is, is it's a family, it's one of a member of a family of molecules. It's a protein, and it's a receptor protein. And what receptors do is they sense the presence of other molecules. So they can sense hormones, but they can also sense pathogens, microbes, bacteria, viruses. And toll-like receptor 4 is a receptor for bacteria. And what it actually senses, I'm going to have to walk over here. So this is a gram-negative bacteria. So this is Salmonella and E. coli are gram-negative bacteria. And in the cell wall of this bacterium is a, is a molecule called lipopolysaccharide, which has lots of carbohydrate on, but ends up being a very complicated lipid. And it's this lipid which is sensed by the receptor toll-like receptor 4, or TLR4. At the molecular level, this is what it looks like. So if you were to take a, a super zoom, high, high, high resolution um, imaging picture, it's actually a, a structure that's solved by crystallography, so it's a very high resolution structure. This is a dimer of the receptor, so that's two molecules. So this is the extracellular domain of one, so this is the receptor domain of one. This is the receptor domain of the other. There's a co-receptor, which is this molecule here. And the red thing here, the little red stick diagram, is the lipid. So this, there's two molecules in the active receptor complex bound to two molecules of the bacterial lipid. And what happens is, is the lipid binds to TLR4. TLR4 then forms a dimer, and this is, this is just a graph to show dimerization in a cell. So this happens in crystals, but it also happens in the cells. You can see two molecules joining together. And the whole object of the exercise is that activation of the receptor will drive the production of inflammatory mediators. Okay, so the point of the innate immune response is to drive inflammation. 
And in infection, inflammation is actually really important. So although too much inflammation is bad news because you, you get a variety of horrible diseases with too much inflammation, if you don't have any inflammation at all, you can't fight infection. So in the context of bacterial gram-negative, bacterial infection, infection with salmonella, infection with E. coli, activation of TLR4 occurs. This drives inflammation, and the inflammation controls the infection. So what has all that got to do with any diseases other than bacterial infection? Well, it transpires that TLR4 is important in lots of things, and not just infection. And that's because TLR4 sits on a, on a knife edge, really. So <coughs> under normal circumstances, if you have a bacterial infection, you'll activate TLR4, and it will try and take care of the infection for you. But if you have a dysregulated response, it's very easy for TLR4 to get hyperactivated. And if TLR4 is hyperactivated, you get excess inflammation, and that starts to damage the body. <clears throat> what has also emerged is that actually TLR4 is not just activated by bacteria, but it can sense um, foreign proteins, misfolded proteins, damaged molecules that are produced by the body when tissue is damaged. And so the net effect of this is that actually the body is activating TLR4 and causing damaging inflammation. And so this is true for kidney disease, for example. It's true for cardiovascular disease, so think of atherosclerosis. TLR4 is important in this. It's increasingly apparent that TLR4 is playing a role in cancer. And then it's also important in, in a bunch of allergic diseases, for example, so allergies to pets. Um, although this creature is, is not allergenic at all. She's my little darling, and she's definitely not allergenic. So what has this all got to do with Alzheimer's disease? So, I told you that TLR4 doesn't just recognise bacteria, but can recognise misfolded proteins. So these are proteins that fold up in a curious way or form <coughs> long strings. And Alzheimer's disease is an example of a disease that's caused by uh, a series of misfolded proteins. So one of those proteins is called amyloid beta. You'll be perhaps familiar with the concepts that people with Alzheimer's disease have amyloid plaques in the brain. Those plaques are formed by amyloid beta. And what's become clear over time is that the disease is caused by amyloid beta forming plaques, but to get to that point, amyloid beta actually activates an immune response and in the brain, the immune response is called neuroinflammation. And it's driven by a specialised uh, population of cells called, predominantly called microglia. Uh, there are some other cells called astrocytes involved, but it's predominantly thought to be the microglial cells responding to the beta amyloid, which then drives an inflammatory response. So, as an infection biologist, I found myself uh, somewhat curiously working with a scientist called David Klenman, who's an incredibly talented um, chemistry uh, professor here. And he was really interested in Alzheimer's disease and beta amyloid. And what, what David does is looks at proteins and works out how many molecules are in the protein. And by which I mean that you get um, a monomer, so a single unit of beta amyloid, and that can join up with another beta amyloid and another one and another one and another one. So you can get species of beta amyloid that go from one up to hundreds. And ultimately, they end up in long strings and tangled. And so the question that 
Dave wanted to know and that I was interested in was, okay, so do any of these beta amyloid molecules actually activate TLR4? And if they do, how big are they? And so Alzheimer's Research UK funded us to do this work. I thought none of this would work, but actually it proved to be much more interesting than I thought it would be. So Craig Hughes, who's a postdoc working with Dave and myself, started some experiments. First of all, he took amyloid beta and he made monomeric, so single unit protein. Then he made oligomeric, which had 20 to 40 molecules of A-beta. And then he made strings of A-beta. He put them on neurons and he saw that different sized proteins caused a different influx of calcium, which causes cell death. And he then put them on some of the uh, microglial cells. So these are the cells that drive the inflammation in the brain. And what he found was, depending upon the number of beta amyloids in the A-beta oligomer, you got more or less inflammation. And he found that actually you had to have between 20 and 40 molecules of beta amyloid to produce the most inflammation. Any less, and it starts to not do very much. Much more, and it starts to not be very active either. And what we did then was a series of, or what Craig did, was a series of experiments um, in cells, and ultimately the graph that's important is this one. And he looked at how much inflammatory mediator was produced in normal cells and in cells um, lacking different molecules, one of which was TLR4. And what he found was that if you didn't have TLR4, you completely lost the inflammatory response to amyloid beta oligomers. Also, you lost the inflammatory response to alpha-synuclein, and alpha-synuclein is a protein that's very important in Parkinson's disease. So it looks like TLR4 seems to be central to driving the inflammatory response to beta amyloid and also to alpha-synuclein. So this then allows you to think about new treatments for Parkinson's in a different way. So rather than trying to clear the brain of the beta amyloid, what you do is you put in a drug that blocks TLR4, and that stops the inflammatory response. So that was the hypothesis. Uh, Dave has a wide network of collaborators, so we thought, well, while we're looking at this, we'll, we'll do a number of experiments to see, to check this is really physiological. So we took spinal fluid from Alzheimer's disease patients. And you can see the graph here in the pale blue. It's inflammatory mediator on the side. That's the CSF from an Alzheimer's disease patient. And you can see there's lots of mediator produced. At the orange line is where we treated the cells with a TLR4 antagonist. And you can see that the inflammation is reduced by treating the cells with a TLR4 antagonist. If you take um, neurons, and, uh, and um, astrocytes and microglia in a mixed population. You put beta amyloid on, what you get is that red spike, which means there's lots of cell death. If you put in a TLR4 antagonist, you switch off the neuronal cell death. And neuronal cell death is a central problem in Alzheimer's disease. And the final set of experiments we did was we took a brain slice and electrically stimulated it. And there's, there's a measure called long-term potentiation and all that is, this is one of these spikes here, is it's a, it's a measure of how memory is formed in the brain. 
and I don't know any more than that because I'm not a neuroscientist, but it's a good physiological readout of how memory occurs. And if you put beta amyloid in, you actually block the formation of long-term potentiation. But if you put a TLR4 antagonist in, you actually reverse the blockade of long-term potentiation. So there's a whole host of evidence then supporting this neuroinflammatory uh, hypothesis being driven by TLR4. Um, and the reason why we were able to get to this point was a combination of factors. Firstly, that Dave is fantastically good at producing defined protein structures for us to work with. He's got access to patient samples, so we can test everything we do against patient samples. And then because I'm an infection biologist, we have all the TLR4 models in the lab. And Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's Research UK wanted to fund people who were from two separate disciplines, get them to work together to see if they could make any progress. So where we're at at the moment with our hypothesis is that Tollite receptor 4 combined to specific amyloid beta molecules and produce neuroinflammation. So blocking that would be a good thing. But there's a further interesting factor to this, and that is that in the presence of inflammatory mediators, you get further oligomerization of the beta amyloid. So you're getting a positive feedback loop whereby your neuroinflammation is driving the production of inflammatory mediators. That's causing the amyloid beta to oligomerize further, which is increasing the neuroinflammation. And so our hypothesis is, if we switch this off, we'll stop further oligomerization of the A-beta and reduce the neuroinflammation in the brains of people. And so this has morphed from one small little grant to a £4 million investment from Apollo Therapeutics. In this investment, we're working with Johnson & Johnson, GSK, AstraZeneca, and a number of smaller companies to try and identify small molecule inhibitors that we can give to patients with, amyloid, with um, Alzheimer's disease, also potentially with Parkinson's disease, as novel therapeutics for the future. So on that note, I'll finish and hand over to Fernanda. Okay, hello. Can you all hear me? Yep. So I will be talking about the work we are doing using organoids to study host bacteria interactions during IBD. So our bodies are not just our own. We share it with a host of microbes. So we carry a lot of bacteria on ourselves, um, in our skin, but in particular in, in our guts. It's a very diverse population. There are up to a thousand different species, and that accounts for a hundred trillion bacterial cells. So it's, it's really a lot. And although those bacteria have been neglected for some time, recently we have come to terms that they are really important for us. They help us to keep healthy. They not only help us digest our food, so they are not only important for our metabolism, but they are key for the development of our immune system. They are key as well to um, keep pathogens at bay. <coughs> Sorry. But they have also been linked to a um, host of diseases, like in particular obesity and inflammatory bowel disease. So these bacteria reside in the middle of our gut, and they are keep, kept there by um, 
I'm going to move here. So they are keeping the lumen of the intestine by this mucus layer, and then we have this epithelial cell layer and the immune system sitting underneath it. And these three-way interactions is really what keeps us healthy. But what happens when this balance between these three compartments is broken? So inflammatory bowel disease, if you don't know, it's a collection of diseases. The two main better knowns are uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And what they share in common, it's chronic inflammation of the gut. And these, it's, they, these are complex diseases. They are not one particular cause. You have to have a particular genetic background, but the environmental factors like your lifestyle, do you exercise or not, and what do you eat, and also the composition of the microbiota, all are going to play together to shift the balance from disease, from health to disease. So in this case, what we have is our immune system going a bit crazy, and what happened then with the balance between the microbiota. And in this case, what we get is a state of dysbiosis. What I mean by dysbiosis is that there is a shift in the, in the diversity of the populations of, in your bacteria in the gut. So in this particular disease, for example, we see an increase in a group of bacteria called protobacteria and a decrease in firmicutes. And in particular, there is an increase on one bacteria called IEC, adherent invasive E. coli. It's a type of E. coli that it's very prevalent in patients with um, IBD, but it's not that present that much in the healthy population. And one of the questions we ask is why? What, what's IEC liking about this um, inflammatory setting? Mm. And to, do, to answer this question, we became interested in the IL-22 pathway. As Claire said before, we like to shorten IL-22. It stands for interleukin-22, and it's a very important cytokine in the maintenance of the homeostasis of the gut. It's sitting right in the middle of our three-way interactions between the microbiota, the epithelium, and the immune system. And it's part of this cycle that you need the microbiota for the correct development of the immune cells that are going to produce IL-22. IL-22 is going to act only on the epithelium, because the epithelium is the only one that has its receptor. And when it binds its receptor, it starts a cascade of signaling, um, ending the ex gene expression of a lot of different genes that have to do with the maintenance of homeostasis, from tight junctions that keep the cells bind together, to secretion of mucus that are going to keep the bacteria away from us. And that, in turn, can change the composition of the microbiota, and you go full circle. So since IL-22 is highly expressed in the intestine of patients with IBD, we start to think that maybe it had an effect on why IEG is so prevalent. And to try to answer this question, we set up a primary intestinal organoid model. So what are organoids? We like to call them mini-guts sometimes. And they look like this. They are pieces of intestine that you can actually grow in the lab. And they have uh, three important um, factors. They have to be multicellular. That means that they have to contain all the different cell types that are normally present in your intestine. We are not made of one cell type only. They have to self-organize because our organs are not flat, we are not 2D, we are in 3D, and each cell is in a particular place because of, for, for a reason. So we need to recreate that structure in our organoids. 
and it has to regenerate. So in, an, in our intestines, we have stem cells that help to regenerate the, gut, the epithelium of the gut, and that helps us to maintain these organoids in culture in the lab. So this is how we grow them. From biopsies from patients or healthy controls, we isolate the crypts from the gut, and these crypts are put into culture inside a gel and with the right um, growth factors. And after a week to 10 days, we have these structures that in real life look a bit like these. And then you can break this up, put them back into culture, and maintain them almost indefinitely. So now that we have our, our organoids, this is our model from the biopsies. We set up the organoid culture. And we have challenged these organoids with IL-22 and injected them with IEC to see what was going on. So taking one question at a time. The first thing we ask is what happened to IEC when IL-22 is present? So what is IL-22 doing to the epithelium? And in turn, is this affecting how IEC grows? And the first answer to this is IEC thrives in the presence of IL-22 which was a bit surprising because one of the key factors, the key roles of IL-22 is to induce the production of antimicrobial peptides to keep our mucus layer free from bacteria. But IEC is actually, if you can see on the first one, IEC is actually dividing more in the presence of IL-22. So the second question was why? Why is this? Why is IEC becoming resistant to killing? And why it's dividing even more? And we did some RNA-seq analysis looking at what genes were expressed in the epithelium when IL-22 was present. And a part of all the antimicrobials that we were expecting, there was this gene called FOOD2. It's um, an enzyme that what it does is to add fucose residues to the glycoprotein. So our mucus layer is composed of glycoproteins. These are proteins that are adorned with uh, sugar residues. And one of the main sugars that they have is fucose. And this enzyme, that's its role to put fucose on these proteins. And you, we can see here, in green, we have stained. This is inside an organoid, and we have stained the mucus. Without IL-22, there is no green, there is very little fucose there. With IL-22, there is a lot of fucose. So fucose, it's one of the sugars that IEC can feed on to grow. So this increased fucosylation could mean that IEC can grow faster. And this is what we see here, that when we grow in, in vitro IEC in the presence or absence of fucose, when there is fucose, it grows fast faster into higher levels. So, so far, it means that, okay, there is more food for the bacteria, but is that enough? Is it all that fucose is doing? So we knocked out this gene in the organoid so that our organoids could not put this sugar residue on its glycoproteins, and we repeated the injection. So here we have our knockout organoids unstimulated, and we have this amount of bacteria. When we stimulate the same organoids with IL-22, we have a reduction on this bacteria. So when fucose is not there, these bacteria are more sensitive to the killing by the same antimicrobials that we had before. 
And we, when we add fucose back to the medium, we recover the same bacterial load. So now we have seen that IL-22 has an effect on IEG. IEG it's resistant to the killing, and it really likes the food that food to it's adding to the, to the mucus there. But it's IEG talking back to the epithelium. It's IEG having an effect on the epithelium as well. And again, the answer is yes. Um, IEG by itself in an IL-22 independent manner can induce food too, so it can tell the cells to produce its food. <coughs> and can tell the cells to help it become more resistant to the killing. And again, we stain the organoids injected with IEG with a <coughs> with a green dye for the fucus, and we can see the untreated that there is very little green, but when there is IEG presence, there is a lot of green. So from this, we could create a model of what's going on during IBD. Normally, we have a lot of bacteria very different ones that help us keep us healthy, but in, when there is IBD and there, are, there is a high concentration of IL-22, the diversity uh, of our microbiota goes down. So a lot of the competitors for the, uh, that IEC has to face are going to be wiped out. So that gives it a niche. Then we have that IL-22, it's going to induce FO2, and it's going to give it give food to these bacteria to help it grow faster, and then it can grow to higher levels on the surface. And then it talks back to the epithelium to keep this cycle going on. So this is how the bacteria and the immune system and the epithelium all talk to each other and shifts, can shift the population towards a dysbiotic state. So this work was funded by Open Target, so it was a collaboration between the University of Cambridge, GSK, and the Sanger. And I received a lot of help from all the different parts, and thank you very much to them, and thank you for listening. So now I'm going to pass the baton on to Ludovic. Thank you. Okay. So, good evening. My name is Ludovic Vallier. I'm a group leader at the Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. Uh, and I'm based at the McLean Laboratory on the clinical campus of the university in, on the Annenbrook site. I'm also part of the NIHR Cambridge uh, Biomedical Research Center. And today I'm going to give you an introduction on stem cells and regenerative medicine, which is my uh, expertise. So my lab really work on stem cells, and uh, we're trying to basically use those stem cells to develop new uh, clinical applications, especially trying to develop cell by therapy for diversity of disease. So what we're trying to achieve is not incredibly new. No? The Greeks have already uh, invented the concept with Prometheus. Basically, the idea is to uh, you know, be able to regrow an organ and replace an organ uh, to, uh, to you know, cure a disease. And of course, with Prometheus that gave the fire to humanity, was punished by the gods uh, to have his liver uh, it uh, every night by, uh, by an eagle and we grow every night. And that's exactly what we're trying to do basically is to uh, allow an no organ to repair themselves either by bringing cells uh, that we grow in the lab or by stimulating endogenous cells to, to grow. And that's no, this idea is not very new. In fact, no, it comes with the 
it's already uh, actually done in some ways by uh, organ transplantation. So I'm affiliated with the Department of Surgery uh, in the clinical school. And the Department of Surgery uh, in Cambridge is the Department of Transplantation. And by clean, you know, there's a few organs that uh, uh, the surgeon in the, in the department transplant uh, almost every week. So now lung, heart, liver, pancreas, kidneys. So this concept of you know, that we can replace organ, that we can repair organ already exists with this uh, uh, the tr organ transplantation. Of course, there's ma major challenges with that, okay? Uh, first, uh, organ transplantation requires immunosuppression because when you transplant an organ from an organ donor, from a cadaveric donor, that means that your body is going to reject it as it was a virus or bacteria, basically. It's going to recognize this uh, exogenous organ as an uh, infection. And so basically, uh, all the patients that are transplanted need to be immunosuppressed and receive so drugs that will diminish their uh, immune system, and so they will be prone to infection, cancer, and so on. It will be a very heavy treatment. So that's one, one first problem. The other problem is that you know, to a transplant organ, unfortunately, we need the cadaveric donors. And that's, of course, a limited source. And over the years, you know, the patients that uh, need transplantation have uh, exponential increase, whereas the number of organ donors have stayed stable in the UK. So that's mean that basically we have more and more patients that die on the waiting list for transplantation. Um, and of course, the third limitation of organ transplantation is that you can't choose organ for everything. You can't transplant a brain, for example. So every neurogenitive disease have, are limited in terms of transplantation. Uh, and that's why you know, we want to use stem cells to try to address all those limitations. And the stem cells that my lab are using are human propellant stem cells uh, that are now you know, mainly derived uh, using overexpression of transcription factors. So what we take, and I will explain that a bit more detail after the slide, and we take a, a, a cells from a patient, skin cells, blood cells, and we reprogram the identity of those blood cells, those, uh, skin cells, into a stem cell that have very specific properties. Uh, and you will see what we, which, which are those properties. And really, you know, this technology of reprogramming cells uh, using transcription factors have been developed by uh, no, uh, Yamanaka, a Japanese researcher, but also by John Gordon here in Cambridge almost 35 years ago. And you no, know, both of them received the, the Nobel Prize a few years ago. And so, just to give you a bit more detail, so what we do in the lab, so we take, you know, we have patients that come in the clinic, we take a skin biopsy, so it's by, you know, a punch biopsy, we do a small hole in the skin, and you now that's the size of the biopsy, and that's, you know, give you uh, one pound, no, give you the, the scale of the, the biopsy. And then, we, uh, basically, from this biopsy, we go what we call fibroblasts, which are basically cells that are in the skin, uh, which have no property apart from to grow a bit in, in a dish, but they can't be used for a lot of application. And so what we do is that we take those uh, dermal fibroblasts and we reprogram them using a virus that overexpresses those transcription factors, OCT4, SOX2, KLM4, and, and NIC. And that's this magic cocktail, basically, allows us to uh, reprogram the identity of those fibroblasts into a, what we call human-induced prepotent stem cells. And uh, so those cells then, have, after are characterized, they can grow indefinitely in a dish, differentiate most on all the cell type of the adult body. And uh, we can store them almost indefinitely in, uh, in liquid nitrogen, so freeze them. And uh, no, we, we can grow a large quantity of those cells. And the, those whole process take around three to four months, basically. So it's a very quick process. Uh, 
So just to give you an idea of the size of those cells and all, uh, because I think it's also important for you to, to see what, what we're working with. So that's a colony, what we call a colony of cells. No? All that is contained around 2,000 cells, so 2,000 of those stem cells. And that will be the size of the tip of a pen, so it's very small. And we grow that no, billion of those cells in a dish. Um, the main property of those cells are, you know, those cells have unique properties, okay? Uh, and that's why we are so excited by those cells. They can uh, self-renew, meaning that they can grow indefinitely in a dish, or we can maintain them for years in a dish, and they will produce billions of you know, daughter cells and, and progenies. And in the meantime, they, can, they have this unique property that you can directly differentiate them, so drive them to become something else, uh, and they can produce almost all the cell type of the adult body. And in the lab, we are particularly interested in pancreas, liver, lung, and no, in Cambridge, other people work on blood, uh, brain, and normal cells. And that's really the combination of those two properties, you know, self-renewal, so indefinite proliferation, and capacity of differentiation that make them uniquely interesting for clinical application. Because by combining those two properties, you can imagine to produce an infinite quantity of cells for cell-based therapy. And now just to give you a more concrete example of the cells we produce in the lab, so you now we produce blood cells, of course, no. Really interesting because one day we hope to be able to produce artificial blood for transfusion. And now we have a, a group like Cedar Gebert that is doing that more actively and preparing clinical trial. We have cardiac cells, again, no, uh, to uh, basically uh, replace a broken heart or damaged heart. No, Sanjacina, again, in the Cambridge Institute, is doing that. We're producing lung cells. Uh, and we know we have a strong uh, program on cystic fibrosis, trying to develop new cell therapy against these uh, monogenic disorders. And no, that's the same cardiac cells, but uh, fluorescent. Um, so really the key job of my lab, okay, over the years, I've been to understand how we can differentiate those stem cells. How can we can produce those differentiated cells from stem cells? And basically it's a bit like cooking. What we do, basically, we take knowledge from normal development and we try to model that in vitro and to mimic that in vitro. And we try just to basically apply those, the knowledge that we have from uh, no, development biologists and apply that to stem cells. And I just want to give you a, a, another example of differentiation. So in this case, no, what we did is to uh, basically uh, no, take the knowledge from uh, development biologists that had studied the brain development and use that basically to apply that to brain cells and to generate brain cells in the dish. And what you can see here is basically you know, brain cells that start to differentiate and form a network that you could uh, no, basically uh, model or mimic what you will see in the brain. So again, our work has been really to uh, define and identify the factors that allow this process to occur in a dish. And now what we are doing basically, and that's the key objective of my lab, is to uh, basically uh, apply this uh, method and this knowledge to develop a personalized cell-based therapy. So basically what we are aiming to do is to take, you know, again, skin biopsy from a patient with a disease, for example, a, a liver disease, which is really uh, one of the key expertise in my lab, and uh, you know, take skin, skin cells, reprogram those cells into uh, human-induced preponderant stem cells. And we are also looking at patients with, for example, monogenity disorders. So what we can do is take is, you know, people that are, uh, you know, have rare disorders, reprogram those cells, and then correct in vitro the mutation that affect this patient by genome editing, and then differentiate the cells you know, into, for example, liver cells 
uh, that will be then or LC because they will have lost the mutation and they will be repaired and we can transplant them back in the original patient. And then you can see in this case, we don't need immunosuppression because basically we're transplanting the cells from the same patient. So it's a autologous transplant. We uh, don't have a problem of quantity because we can produce a ton of those cells. And by, you know, we can produce almost all the cell type of the body, so we don't have a, a limitation in terms of the organ we want to work with. So, really, you know, as I told you, the organ we want to uh, study is liver. So, you know, it's the biggest liver, a bigger organ in the, in the body. Uh, it has multiple functions. So, you know, most of you will know the liver because of alcohol, but it's go far beyond that, of course. Uh, no, it's really important for detoxification. Uh, so, I understand that to take paracetamol, your liver will make sure that paracetamol doesn't kill you. But if you take too much paracetamol, it will kill your liver, so that's important to know. Uh, it's uh, also a really important organ for secretion. It's secret factor, you no know, coagulating factors, factor nine. So, you know, people have mutation in, uh, you no know, coagulating factors have mutation in their liver, actually. Uh, it's a really important organ of storage, store glycogen. So, you know, when you are diabetes, you have a problem of storage with this organ. And uh, so, basically, when you have uh, liver disease, you are really quickly in trouble, basically. And much, most, most liver disease that reach end stage where your liver is not functional anymore, there is no cure, you need a liver transplantation. And uh, there is a broad diversity of genetic disorders that affect the, the, the liver. And the one we have been working uh, no, past, for the past few years is alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is basically a mutation that affects the production of a protein that's called alpha-antitrypsin. And in this case, what's happened is that this uh, mutation doesn't block the expression of this protein, but results in a change of configuration of the protein, which form polymers, no? long chain of sugar, that accumulate in the liver and basically destroy your liver. So all the patients with alpha-1 antitrypsin will end up with no, a liver like that, which is not functional, and so we need a liver transplantation. Um, so what we're trying to do is basically, you know, try to develop personalized cell-based therapy for those patients. So, you know, we're taking patients in the clinic in Annan Brooks. Uh, we're deriving iPS cells. We correct the mutation in those iPS cells. And then after, we produce hepatocytes that are corrected. And we are uh, no, trying to demonstrate that those hepatocytes can be uh, used for cell-based therapy. And um, no, just to show you how we do this differentiation into liver cells. So, uh, no, we take those iPS cells, no, the colony I show you. And then after, we basically follow in vitro what is really occurring during normal liver development in vivo. And now we differentiate those cells. So it's a step-by-step -step process. And we need to respect this step-by-step -step because that's the only way that we can naturally produce cells that are functional. If we no, forget one of the steps, then the cells are not naturally produced and are not functional. So basically, you know, our protocol, for example, we're trying to generate cells in 35 days, 40 days. So it's a process of 40 days. Uh, and of course, no. Um, some of you may think about that take a lot of time, but in uh, vivo, no, liver development will uh, take nine months for birth, and then will take an additional 12 months for functional maturation. So it's almost 21 months. And of course, no, jaundice in baby, for example, is a mark that the liver is not functioning and need a bit of time to function. So what I'm trying to say is basically we're trying to uh, no, compress in 40 days what in natural development will take almost uh, no, two years to, to generate. And that's one of the key challenges we have. But nonetheless, no, we can generate cells that have the, the function and uh, aspect of uh, liver cells. And I'm just showing you here is some of those hepatocytes that we generate in vitro that express alpha-antitrypsin. Okay? That's normal. They produce these cells. And that's, in fact, showing you the disease form of the protein. So no, this green bulb is bad signs, meaning you have the disease. And what I'm showing here is no, is 
before correction and after correction. And you can see that after correction, likely, we have been able to uh, eradicate the abnormal form of the protein. So the, now the hepatocytes are healthy, and those hepatocytes will function and cool no regenerate to your liver. And the last thing we did to demonstrate that it was possible is to basically transplant those uh, hepatocytes into an animal model, uh, which is, uh, in fact, an animal model for liver failure. So those mice will basically uh, now lose their liver naturally because they have a, a mutation. And uh, what we did is to demonstrate that the hepatocyte we generate in the dish from those patients that are corrected and produced in vitro after 40 days can be transplanted in the liver of a mice, basically uh, colonize the liver of the mice. So like that, we can find human hepatocytes in a mouse liver. And we can show that, in fact, no, those hepatocytes are functional, can rescue the mice, so repair its liver. And also, no, we can see human function, or at least human protein produced in those mice. So suggesting that, no, the cells we have generated could be used one day into patients with this disease. OK, so no, that's short introduction of the work we do. And of course, it's a simplification. But I think it shows you, you know, the price of things we're doing. Uh, it's a combination of, you know, between stem cell biologists, developer biologists, but also regenerative medicine. And uh, no, what is important to know is that you no know, stem cells is definitely a new therapy, so you no know, future of, 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 of medicine. And uh, starting, you no, know, the first IPS was derived in 2007, so it's relatively new. It took almost 30 years, 35 years for liver transplantation to be, you know, a, a treatment. So you now we are just at the beginning of this new medicine. So we're starting to just see the first application. Uh, what is also important that no, beyond those uh, application, transnational application, stem cells also have a very important role in terms of basic studies. And I think you know, often uh, we forgot that. But as I show you, know, we can now use stem cells to basically study development in the dish and study you know, all the mechanisms that allow the differentiation and production of, of those cell types. Uh, and ultimately, you see what we can do now is to use those systems to basically screen drug and understand disease much better because we can basically study disease in dish from all those patients that we have derived stem cell for. So that's now, I think, the key message to take home. So just to finish my talk, what I would like to say is that first I would like to thank my team because, of course, I, I don't work in the lab anymore, as you can see. Uh, but um, so that's the people that do the work in the lab, uh, you know. Um, all the, the team working on IPS duration, liver disease, and this modeling, or funding also, which is really important. And a big part of this work has been funded by the uh, European Research Council, so EU funding, and uh, also, no, of course, the NHR and, and the MRC. I thank you for your attention. Hello, uh, my name is Josefina Foscolu. I am a research associate here in the University of Cambridge. And today I'm going to talk to you about uh, cancer immunotherapy and uh, what, uh, where we are right now and what, how we can improve cancer immunotherapy. So uh, as like most of you uh, know, uh, cancer is not a new disease. Like, and actually the first uh, written description of cancer was 3,000 uh, uh, years uh, before Christ. And uh, thankfully, things uh, have moved on since then. And uh, since uh, the mid-90s, uh, uh, mid we can also use uh, immunotherapy as um, a way to treat cancer. So first of all, what is uh, cancer immunotherapy? Uh, in uh, this type of treatment, what we are trying to do is that we try to um, uh, use the patient's own immune system and uh, 
by using the patient's own uh, immune system, we want to uh, boost the immune system, first of all, and second, and second of all, we want to teach the immune system in order to target and eliminate cancer cells. So uh, cancer immunotherapy, in theory at least, uh, has, a potential to be, has the potential to be a universal answer to cancer because the immune cells can travel all over our body and uh, we can also have uh, like long-term protection because usually what our uh, immune cells do is that they keep a record of what it has happened. And by keeping this record, when we're gonna have like a pathogen or cancer again, the cells are prepared, they're very well prepared, and they can uh, eliminate cancer before we even realize it. So there are uh, many different types of uh, cancer immunotherapy. Uh, we can have cancer vaccines, which we usually use them for prophylaxis. For example, uh, we, have, um, we have vaccines for, hep uh, for hepatitis beta. Uh, we can uh, have oncolytic viruses, which uh, what they do is that uh, we can use uh, some already known viruses and uh, we can make them in order to target only uh, cancer cells. And by using these viruses, uh, they go into the cancer cells, they proliferate inside there, uh, they kill the current cell and they can then go to other cancer cells and kill more cancer cells. And uh, we also have, uh, we can also have uh, adoptive cell transfer, which is the main therapy that we're gonna talk uh, about today. And then we can have more like checkpoint inhibitors or antibodies. The first thing that uh, we should uh, realize is that the immune system is a little bit complicated. It has uh, a lot of uh, different uh, cells. And uh, usually we divide the immune system in two main categories. The first category is uh, the innate uh, immune system, which um, uh, it is not specific. It is it has the non-specific defense. It is a non-specific defense mechanism. I'm sorry. And for example, the macrophages or the dendritic cells can be part of this uh, innate immunity. And on the other hand, we have the adaptive immunity, which um, is specific, and it is specific either to a pathogen or to a specific antigen. And uh, from the adaptive immunity, the cells that we are mostly interested uh, in uh, are the CD8 T cells. The reason why we are very interested in these uh, T cells is because uh, T cells are like soldiers that can search inside our body and they can really find where the cancer cells are and they can uh, destroy the invaders, the invaders. So in adoptive cell transfer, what we do is that we actually take blood from the patient, as we can see here. Uh, we, extract the, we extract the T cells from the blood, and then we can modify those cells inside the lab. And by, modify, um, we, by modifying them, what we do is that we, uh, make them, we make them to express some receptors that uh, are specific for cancer cells. So as we can see here, we can have for example, the CAR is a CAR receptor that is chimeric antigen receptor. And the, when the cells uh, have, this receptor, have, have this receptor, they can uh, specifically uh, find cancer cells and they can kill them. So when we uh, have these cells, then we can expand them in the lab. And the, when we have sufficient amount of cells, we can introduce them back into the patient. And now the cells can really uh, find the tumor cells and they can uh, target it and uh, kill it. 
So the main uh, advantages of uh, this treatment is that uh, it, is, it can be very precise, so the cells can really um, uh, go only to cancer cells and not to normal <laughs> cells and can kill specifically the, these cells. They can, uh, the cells can also adapt, that means that because cancer can uh, change uh, sometimes, the, our immune system can also adapt to these changes and can continue um, protecting us uh, against uh, cancer. And uh, this, the, um, uh, the advantage of this therapy, we can also see it because, for example, uh, in acute lymphoplastic leukemia, we now have 90% uh, complete response, and we have in uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia 80 to 40% overall response. So this therapy is very novel. It, it, it took FDA approval only a year and a half ago. And uh, as we can see, although uh, it is not yet perfect, it has some very promising results. The reasons why this, uh, this therapy is not yet perfect uh, is because, of course, nothing comes without a price, and we do have some limitations by using this therapy. Uh, the first limitation is that um, it has been, we have observed that uh, when we use, uh, when we put these cells back into the patient, sometimes uh, the patient the patients uh, have cytokine release syndrome, which is like, let's say, an off-target effect. And this uh, syndrome um, uh, happens because the cells are, are hyperactivated and uh, the patients have very high fever. Fortunately enough, we already know uh, how we can uh, stop this syndrome and how, like, which drugs we can use in order the patients to stop suffering from uh, this off-target effect. The other limitation that uh, this um, therapy faces is that uh, this, uh, while we culture the cells into the lab, um, they, they differentiate a lot. And when we put them back into the patient, unfortunately, they, they do not persist for longer. So if you remember, I said that at the beginning that a very um, important thing about our immune system is that they can keep a record. That as we can have with vaccination, that uh, after some time, if we have the disease, the immune system will be already familiarized and it's gonna, uh, uh, we're not going to have the disease at the end because the, our, immune, uh, our immune cells are going to be able to uh, kill the invader. Uh, this memory, unfortunately, uh, re uh, is related to a specific type of cells. And if we keep the cells into the lab and we expand them for a very long time, uh, uh, the memory is lost. So when the cells go into the patient, uh, they can kill some of the cancer cells, but they cannot uh, stay there forever. The cells at some point uh, die. So what we are interested in uh, our lab is to find ways in order to keep this persistence. And uh, in order to do that, we have to understand uh, how the, the, the basic biology of the T-cell. And we know, for example, that the T-cells come in very many different shapes, let's say. And they can be less differentiated, as are the red and the yellow cells. And they can be also more differentiated, as they are the effector MMR cells and the effector cells. And uh, we have... Uh, we now know that if we use for uh, this treatment cells that are less differentiated, as these ones, 
then we have more effective, uh, more effective results. Whereas when we use this uh, type of, um, of cells, then the therapy is not as effective. So in order uh, for us to find a way to make the cells to be more persistent and to stay in this memory way, we have also to understand uh, how the T cells, like where the T cells are, how they behave in their natural environments. And we now know that uh, the T cells, uh, while they travel inside our, our body, they encounter many different uh, levels of oxygen. And uh, actually, their native environments, the lymphoid tissues, are naturally hypoxic, which means they, they have low oxygen levels. So another very important thing about uh, the T cells that we now know is that um, when we activate them, uh, they overexpress a factor which uh, is called hypoxia-inducible factor. So hypoxia, the, these low oxygen levels, really can, uh, they can really influence the T cell activation. So when this uh, hypoxia-inducible uh, factor is, uh, is overexpressed, uh, on one hand, it uh, drives the cells into this uh, more effector type, that uh, they proliferate a lot and they can, uh, they can kill cancers. On the other hand, though, we have, um, in our lab, we uh, understood that HIF-1-alpha can also lead to accumulation, can increase the levels of some specific metabolites, uh, as uh, the 2-hydroxyglutarate. This is one metabolite that naturally occurs in our, in our cells. And uh, what we have now uh, realized is that hypoxia, and specifically the hypoxia-inducible factor one, can uh, lead to accumulation of uh, this metabolite. And when this metabolite uh, is in high levels, the cells now uh, are driven into a memory phenotype instead of an effector phenotype. So the idea in the lab is that uh, if we can use this metabolite in order to have the cells in a more memory formation, and uh, this, uh, in theory, would uh, make the, the CAR T cells also to persist. So uh, when we use this metabolite in, uh, in, um, in cells, we can now see that irrespectively of uh, how we catch the cells, so um, IL-2, IL-7, and IL-15, is uh, different uh, molecules that we use when we culture our cells. Uh, so irrespectively of how we culture uh, the, our cells, our T cells, if we use the 2-AG, we are able to see that they go from this effector uh, state to a central memory state, which is the, uh, the subpopulation the sub that we need in order for this uh, therapy to be uh, the most efficient. So uh, what we are trying, our, what's our aim? Our aim is, first of all, to understand the basic biology behind this. And we want to understand why the accumulation of specific metabolites can drive the cells into one phenotype versus the other. And as soon as uh, we are able to, um, to answer this important question, then we, uh, we would like to see if we can use these metabolites in our favor and in order to uh, treat the, the cells 
in the lab before we put them back into the patient and in order to have uh, better uh, effectiveness. So again, I'm a part of Randall Johnson group. I would like to thank uh, very much uh, everyone in the lab and also from the Department of uh, Medicine, Professor uh, Ken Smith, as well as um, uh, our founders, which uh, is Darwin College, the Evelyn Trust and Apollo Therapeutics. Okay, uh, so just based on the last talk about the, the connectedness of the immune system, you switch something off or you change something and then you end up, you have something else happening. So what will happen when you switch off or switch on to, to get the DLL4 to act? So there might be something that the immune system will do that we don't expect. So do you have any? So, so yes, so the thing with TLR4 <clears throat> is that it's actually responding abnormally in Alzheimer's disease because there's a high level of VA beta there. Under normal circumstances, that wouldn't be there. So what you're actually doing is you're getting overstimulation of a normal response. So you're just taking out an excess of inflammation by doing that. So that we think that's the most likely thing to happen. So normally with TLR4, if it's switched off, it's actually something else isn't switched on to compensate because it's a very, very crude part of the immune system. It's part of the innate immune system. So it's, I liken it to kill or cure, basically, because that's, that's what it does. Too much TLR4 and you're dead. Okay? Too little TLR4 and you can't control infections. So it's, it's a protein that's very much kept in check by the body. Um, is it possible for people to leave you their email address and for you to uh, forward the copies of the slides, which are most interesting? Uh, yeah? Oh, that's fabulous. Thank you. What we'll do is we can coordinate that through Tammy, if you don't mind, rather than us individually. Right, I don't know about anybody you. else, but I get about four or 500 emails a day, so it's, <laughs> it's slightly tedious. Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask is what this means for people who are suffering from immune suppressant diseases today. Which bit? A any of it. <laughs> Anything that you think might be helpful, you know, specifically to say that this is what's going to happen or improve things for those people who are at this point. So it's very complicated. But as you'll have appreciated from the last slide, the immune system consists of a very large number of cells. And when you've got a, an immune deficiency of one sort or another, it can affect any of those cells individually. So each immune disease tends to target one cell and can target one receptor. Where we're at is that we understand way more about the biology and way more about the molecules that are involved. And with the work that's going on now, we, in Cambridge we have a, a biobank. We're archiving samples from patients that have particular immune diseases. This allows us in the lab to explore that and to look for, for new therapies. Things are moving on at a fantastic rate um, at the moment. The, the slowest part of the process is actually the drug discovery process. We're, we're identifying targets very, very quickly. 
but once you identify a target, it can take between five and ten years to get a drug approved for therapy. So it's, things are really moving at a great rate, but to precisely answer your question, we'd need to know what was the problem with an individual and then work on it from there. So, Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Uh, my, my head is full after those four talks. Um, from, from the last talk about the CAR-T cell therapy, you gave some percentage figures for the effectiveness of the therapy. I think there's two different kinds of leukemia. But what determines which forms of cancer are susceptible to this kind of therapy and which forms of cancer are not susceptible to it? So that's a great question, actually. Um, we, the, this type of therapy is uh, very effective for uh, leukemias, for blood, uh, for blood uh, cancers. Unfortunately, we haven't seen yet great uh, results in uh, solid tumors. We now see better results in neuroblastoma. The reason why we uh, can't see uh, great results in solid tumors yet is because uh, the solid tumors have um, managed to evade and uh, like to block uh, T cells of going in. So, because the tumor microenvironment and the tumor cells uh, themselves, they are able to um, to release uh, inhibitors. The T cells cannot really uh, invade into the tumor. We have a new uh, um, a new way now to overcome this uh, hurdle. For example, uh, if you saw, we have like uh, checkpoint inhibitors, which are uh, antibodies that uh, can block. Uh, the tumor T cells of, uh, from the tumor T cells to inhibit T cells of going in. And by using a combination now of these, uh, these inhibitors that uh, block the inhibition of T cells and the CAR T cells, now we expect to have better results in the future. But yes, like one major uh, concern is if the cells can go inside the tumor. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Vitamin B12 appears to be protective in some way against Alzheimer's. I just wondered if your research has, can show any link with that aspect. Short answer, no. Never mind. <laughs> but day, uh, but I, will, I will add a right to that, which is that I can't tell you the answer to that. But immunometabolism, which is the study of how metabolism impacts on the immune system, is a very important area. And so B12 feeds into a number of different metabolic pathways. So it may well be that 10 to 15 years down the line when immunometabolism is mature, we could answer that question. Me at the moment, no, because I don't do immunometabolism. Sorry to stick to Alzheimer's. <clears throat> You're working me hard. If I can remember. Um, there is also the theory that it's affecting in, um, the tubal uh, proteins inside the cells, not the beta amyloid. And also there's a new, recently I've been reading about uh, gingivitis and that connection. Can you say anything about those two things? Not a huge amount, except there's also quite a lot of evidence that the microbiome, which Fernanda was talking about, can also impact on Alzheimer's disease. And there's also quite a lot of interesting evidence that shows that patients that get an infection afterwards are very much iller than they were before. And we think it's all tied up with the neuroinflammation pathways, but we don't understand enough about it yet. I suspect it will all contribute. The microbiome is very important, and there's a whole host of factors that, that feed into those pathways 
there's a commonality of information that, that sort of weaves through a number of those different um, pathways. One more question? So you've mentioned inflammation a number of times, both in relation to gut disease and Alzheimer's. Um, there's quite a lot on the internet about turmeric, curcumin helping to control inflammation. Any comments? It, uh, that one I can comment on. Yes, um, actually turmeric interferes with some of the pathways that are stimulated by TLR4. There's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that it actually blocks something called a transcription factor which drives the transcription of the gene within the nucleus. And so turmeric has been shown to interfere with pathway basically between proteins like TLR4 and the cytokine, the pro-inflammatory mediators. So that's uh, the hypothesis behind how turmeric actually works. Whether you can eat enough <laughs> to actually have a significant medical effect, I think, is, is an interesting question. And that's the issue with, with a lot of plant therapies is, you know, can you take enough on board to actually have a sensible effect? You can definitely affect your microbiome, but whether you can take enough to, to get a high enough level to get into your brain and do something useful, I don't know. Yeah, I know, I know. I just don't know if you, if, you know, the, the, the thing is with a lot of medicines like that, there's, there's no clinical data on it. So you, you can eat a capsule, but none of, what the pharmaceutical companies do is if you eat a drug, you then have to measure how much of it goes into your blood, which then gets into the target area. And nobody does that sort of study for plants. So I, I, I actually am I'm unaware of how much would be available in the blood to actually reach your brain. Well, I guess it probably depends how much you eat, <laughs> frankly. Um, on that note, I'd like to thank you all for coming. It's been a pleasure to talk to you all today, and I hope we've been informative. Thank you very much.